Welcome to the Middle Church Podcast, a multicultural, multi-ethnic, intergenerational movement of spirit and justice, powered by revolutionary love with room for everyone. No matter where you are, how you look, or who you love, we pray this podcast will help you on your journey. Here's this week's sermon. Well, hello, Middle Church. <laughs> Happy Lunar New Year. It is so good to be with you in person. People ask if I miss New York, and to my surprise, I don't. <laughs> I've, I lived for over 25 years of my life in this city, and so its energy, the city's people, its architecture, and its art, it has become a part of who I am. It's something deeply spiritual. I am never without New York City, if that makes sense. I feel the same way, of course, about middle. I miss being with you on Sundays as I was in 2006 when I joined the church, the first church I ever joined in my life. In 2007, when I started seminary. In 2010, when after seminary, I joined the staff. In 2017, when I was ordained in the Reformed Church in America as the... (laughs) And the applause is because I was the first openly gay and married person in the denomination. Yes, we did this together. (laughs) I'm plotting for us all because it was a group effort. Thank you. (laughs) And of course, in 2019, when I came back on staff for a few months, and then I transferred my ordination status to the United Church of Christ. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Middle Collegiate Church... You all, even if we haven't met yet, are part of who I am. It is deeply spiritual. I am never without you. Middle is with me when I serve part-time as an assistant minister at First Congregational Church of Los Angeles. Middle is with me at my full-time job as controller at Inner City Law Center. Inner City Law Center is a nonprofit legal services organization that serves people experiencing homelessness. Our offices are in downtown Los Angeles in Skid Row. In a four square mile neighborhood that is Skid Row, there are over 4,400 people who are experiencing homelessness. And most of them are living in their cars or on the streets. At ICLC, I'm not limiting myself to debits and credits, although I love debits and credits. I've helped form an unofficial affinity group for staff who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer, plus. We actually have a lot of people in the plus, dot, dot, dot. In November, we held a lunchtime discussion about the challenges of being LGBTQ and going home for the holidays. And I believe that idea came from something we did here at Middle many years ago. 
And at ICLC, I've helped start the book club. In January, we started reading Isabel Wilkerson's Cast, <laughs> The Origins of Our Discontent. So, <laughs> we picked the book back in October, way before any of us knew that Ava DuVernay was creating a film based on the book called Origin. Several of us had bought the book back in 2020 after the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Aubrey, among others. But we didn't get around to reading the book. It sat on the bottom bookshelf or in a moving box, mostly forgotten until now. In the book cast, Wilkerson compares the US with India and with 20th century Nazi Germany to help us see that US society is a caste system, a not talked about, not pointed out system of ranking people in groups, a system of assigning people to social roles based on which group they belong to, and a system of defining who belongs to which group so that some people get more money, more land, more power at the cost of other people's lives. For me as an Asian American, seeing US society as a caste system is helpful for several reasons. Here are two. This list is not complete because I'm still reading the book. First, caste helps us focus on structural racism. Racism is a big, you all know this, it's a big complex topic. Under the umbrella of racism, we could talk about interpersonal, uh, interpersonal racism, like microaggressions. We could talk about institutional racism, like governmental policies. Caste is about structural racism. Wilkerson writes that caste is the worn grooves of comforting routines and unthinking expectations, patterns of a social order that have been in place so long that it looks like the natural order of things. Mm -hmm. Under the umbrella of racism, if we only look at microaggressions, if we only look at governmental policies, then we can miss seeing the hidden structures of caste. That's one. Second, caste helps us name racial differences without engaging in hierarchies of oppression. Are you familiar with the term hierarchies of oppression? Sometimes it's called the oppression Olympics. We create hierarchies of oppression when we try to argue, for example, that a black lesbian woman is more oppressed than a white straight woman. Hierarchies of oppression are a no-no because suggesting that a black lesbian woman is more oppressed than a white straight woman can make it harder for women to work together for justice. But a caste system, by definition, is ranked. Different groups have different experiences. So caste helps us name that in the US, black people 
are undervalued, and their lives are put at risk in a uniquely evil way. It can do that. CAST allows us to name the uniqueness of anti-black racism without playing the oppression Olympics. And in so doing, CAST creates a space for non-black, non-white people like me to grieve anti-black violence without feeling threatened that our experiences as people of Asian, Pacific Islander, Latino, Native American descent are being left out. Unfortunately, in caste, no one is left out. In the book club at work, we are attorneys and we're pro, I don't know if any of them are online, if you are, hello. We are attorneys and program staff and one accountant. We meet on Zoom during lunchtime. Last week, we discussed part two in which Wilkerson defines caste and shares stories about people hurt by the caste system. Early in our discussion, some pressing questions came up. How do we solve this? What's the answer? What can we do to change the system? None of us had read the whole book, so we didn't know how Isabel Wilkerson would answer these questions. When faced with a problem as large as caste in the US, often people want to jump ahead to answers. By focusing on solutions, people can avoid sitting with the heaviness of the problem. Knowing this, thanks to learning at middle, I shared with the group an answer, a, an off-the-cuff, band-aid sort of answer that could offer just enough hope to calm the questions that were distracting us from looking more deeply at the evils of caste. My off-the-cuff answer was that the way to solve our social evils is by changing hearts and minds. By changing hearts and minds. What has helped me see this clearly is the 1896 U.S. Supreme Court decision, Plessy versus Ferguson. That decision declared that state laws segregating black and white Americans in public spaces, Jim Crow laws, were not a violation of the U.S. Constitution. In other words, Jim Crow laws were legal. In the majority opinion, Justice Henry Billings Brown argued that the case came down to whether the Jim Crow law in Louisiana was reasonable. Nothing about equal protection of the laws, simply whether the law was reasonable. And in determining reasonableness, Brown wrote, the Louisiana legislature was free to consider the established usages, customs, and traditions of the people. This was based less on what the 14th Amendment said and more on the customs and traditions of the people. And when Brown wrote people, we know who he meant. I believe that the way to change our social evils is by changing the customs and traditions 
of the people. And we change the traditions and customs of the people by changing hearts and minds. Our scripture reading is about changing hearts and minds. Jesus leads Peter and James and John up a high mountain where Jesus' physical appearance is completely transformed. His clothes become shining white, transfiguration. This biblical scene reminds me of the end of August Wilson's Joe Turner's Come and Gone. Do you all know this play? At the end, the main character, Loomis, is shining, shining like new money. And as August Wilson describes in a stage note, in this moment, Loomis has found his song, the song of self-sufficiency, fully resurrected, cleansed, and given breath, free from any encumbrance other than the workings of his own heart and the bonds of the flesh. Transfiguration opens up an in-between space between heaven and earth, between freedom and flesh, between divine and human. High on the mountain, Jesus is revealed to Peter and James and John as between heaven and earth, divinely human and humanly divine. After that moment of transfiguration, Jesus leads Peter and James and John down the mountain to continue their earthly ministries of teaching and healing and feeding and praying. Jesus tells them to tell no one about what they had just seen until after the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Well, imagine what Peter and James and John were thinking. Son of Man? Wait, is Jesus the... Is that what all that shininess was about? <laughs> Wait, rise from the dead? Does that mean that Jesus... Wait, we just had the most amazing experience, probably the closest we'll ever get to heaven without actually dying, and Jesus wants us to keep it a secret? <laughs> After coming down the mountain, Peter and James and John may not have talked about what they had seen, but imagine how Jesus' transfiguration transfigured them. Imagine how Jesus' shininess made them shine. As they went around tending to the sick, how might the light in their eyes have brightened? As they went around feeding the hungry, how might the expanse of their shoulders have widened? As they prayed for the poor, how might the touch of their hands have strengthened? Their clothes may not have been shiny white, but imagine how their changed selves then changed others. As you go about your life, as you continue your earthly ministries, 
now and then you will find that an in-between space has somehow opened up. Maybe not on a mountaintop with a shiny, bedazzled Jesus, <laughs> but some kind of in-between space where the line between heaven and earth is less clear. Or put another way, where the connection between the divine and human is closer. Allow that moment to change you. Whether you tell someone about it or keep it a secret, allow that moment to change you. Feel that change in your heart. Feel that change in your mind. Feel that change in your body, in your eyes, in your shoulders, in your hands. You have witnessed the truth of the universe, which is divine love. When you feel overwhelmed by the problems of society and how those social problems have become your personal problems, remember the truth of the universe. Remember divine love. It is a part of you. You are never without divine love. It's deeply spiritual. Divine love is changing your heart and your mind. And through the power of divine love, you and I will continue to change hearts and minds until caste is no more, until racism is no more, until divisions are no more, until all there is is love. 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 May it be so. Thanks for listening, friends. To learn more about Middle Church, visit middlechurch.org. You can help grow this movement of love and justice by rating us on Apple or Spotify and by sharing this episode with a friend or two. Send us an email at info at middlechurch.org if you have any questions or comments. We hope you'll come back next week. Bye for now.